0: Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation?" Father, I know that as a man, as a preacher, and as a pastor, I have nothing good to offer these people whom I love apart from your word. And I thank you that as the very first two verses of that chapter I just read proclaim for us, you are a God who speaks to us, and you have spoken to us completely, fully, perfectly, in your complete, full, and perfect Son. Lord, I pray that as we read this text today, as we see the passage in front of our eyes, Lord, that you would do a mighty work, uh, that you would prohibit us from becoming distracted by the things that are ahead of us this week. That you would keep our minds from wandering into what we have been doing and thinking of this last weekend. Lord, I pray that you would only permit what is true to come out of my mouth. That you would cause those words to be clear. And that by the power of your Holy Spirit, those true and clear things would be able to help those who hear them. Lord, we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus must be first and foremost in your life. Not second, not third, not any other place in your life, but first. A right relationship with Jesus is more important than health or happiness. A right relationship with Jesus... Is more important than your relationship with your children or with your spouse. To know and to love Jesus is more important than life. How foolish is it then for people to fixate on anything other than the cross of Jesus in their search for peace? I want for you all just to, right now, as we're getting ready to dive into our text today, just to consider for a moment your greatest anxiety. You may not be a particularly anxious person. You may need to dig deeper. Or you may be an anxious person who has many things come to mind right now. I want you to think about what is your greatest anxiety, the thing that takes up most of your attention, what you thought about and maybe lost sleep over or worried about more this last week than anything else. What was that? What is it for this coming week? The place in your life where your cares... And the cares of this world leak into your life like water through a hole in the side of a boat. I think it's so common for us to, when we see or when we feel the, the water pouring into the boat, we grab the bucket and we start to bail out. Got to fix my marriage. I've got to save my kids. Got to repair that broken relationship or get my boss to realize my potential. Got to pay the bills. Got to plan my schedule. Do you, in folly, neglect the real issue, the hole in the side of the boat? Jesus must be first place in your life. And when he's not, that's the hole. And it affects us in so many ways. Have you ever sat with a brother or sister in Christ and they are seeking particular counsel and they they share with you a struggle that they're enduring? And then they're fixated on it. They're saying, "How, how can I make this thing better? You seek to help them and you try to give practical guidance and maybe you draw on areas of your own life where you've seen victory in that particular struggle or... Maybe you try to think of verses. What are some verses that help a person when they're, when, they're, when, they're, when they're down on their luck? Or when they're concerned about their health? Or when their husband just won't love them like they need to be loved? Or their wife just will not be in right relationship with them as they want to be? If you've been there with people before, if you've been there yourself in either of those two seats before, You know how prone we are to look at creation? You know it if you've been there. Bailing the water, looking at the problems of life or the places we sense that there is a profound lack. If you've helped people through those kind of times before, You won't have had it done that long before as a believer you realize that the first place you must go is a person's relationship with Jesus. In other words, what I'm saying, as many of you well know, if you've got that relationship right, you have the makings of all you need. To have peace with God cannot be found apart from Christ. No matter how great your marriage is, or how wonderful the material possessions appear to be in your life, no no matter how much peace there seems to be with your extended family, or with your kids, or your neighbors, no matter how well all that's going, if your relationship with Jesus is off, you cannot and will not have peace with God. been amazing to me how many people I've known in my life who have given me example of being a strong believer enduring the most difficult things with a smile and not not the fake smile that just pretends bad things don't happen but with the it is well with my soul kind of heart you must get Christ right. The author of our text this morning is dealing with the wrong understanding of Jesus. He authoritatively declares that Jesus is more than a mere angel. He's not a created being. And the entire Old Testament testifies that Christ will be far more than just a creature. Many have tried in history to say that the divinity of Jesus was a New Testament invention. Did you know people say this? Have you ever run into someone who feels this way? If you have any Jewish friends, you might know this. You might know any Jehovah's Witness friends. You might have dealt with this. That, That the divinity of Jesus is a New Testament invention. That is, the apostles at some point either got confused or came up with an idea to import Godhood to Jesus. So that as they wrote the gospel accounts and the letters of the New Testament, they go, aha, let's let's start telling people that this man Jesus is actually God. People have believed this all throughout Christian history. Perhaps most notably today, we might think of as a large category of people, the Jews. Modern Orthodox Jews today maintain, just as the Pharisees did in the New Testament, that Jesus is not the Messiah. Not only is he not divine, but he is not the anointed one promised from God to be sent into this world. And so they're still waiting for a savior. They're still waiting for their king. In the first chapter of this letter that I just read from beginning to end, I read all of Hebrews chapter 1 to you, the author makes at least four observations drawn from the Old Testament that foretell that the coming Christ would be more than an angel. In fact, he says right out of the gate, it's going to be more than a man, and now he's going to make the case that not just more than a man, but more than an angel even So before we get very far, we're going to do verses 5 and 6 today. Before we get very far, I want you to see why the author is doing this. This is one of those places where the author makes it really clear, both before and after, at the beginning two verses of the chapter and the last two verses of the chapter into the beginning of the next one. He makes it very clear why it is he's building this case for us. He sets up his reasoning the first two verses. Look at those again. I read them just a moment ago. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. So here, as we've already seen in past weeks, we've walked through this verse multiple times already. Jesus is compared to the prophets in the Old Testament. The fallible human messengers were used of God to establish the foundations of the religion of the Hebrews. The audience are those who are following, have as their foundation what was given by the voice of man, delivered by these prophets of the Old Testament. But now, in these last days, his message has been more fully revealed through the heir of God, the creator of the universe. That's the first part. We already get the why. So so now now after the author has said, it used to be this way, it's going to be this way, it is now this way in Jesus, he goes on to tell us how amazing and huge and supreme Jesus is. But he makes his point even clearer in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord. So do you get it? You see this? The message of the Old Testament should have been heeded. Now it was tradition at this point, and there are even some passages in the Old Testament that speak to this. We'll get there when we get to chapter two. But the Hebrews believed that God sent messengers, angels, to come to earth to be the bringers of the message of the Hebrew religion to the people that was then delivered by the prophets and further built upon by subsequent prophet, prophets. So came from angels and through these prophets. So how much more should we turn our attention to what Jesus said? Who is supreme over the angels has proclaimed. You you know the principle at play here, don't you? You know the, if if you should have obeyed this one, how much more this one? You, You know that principle. Imagine getting a letter from your cable company that says on it, final notice. Without even opening, you have a pretty good idea somehow the bill hadn't been paid and you may be prompted to action. But let's be honest. How nervous do you get about that? What's the worst they can do? I got Netflix. What's the worst they can do? You finish meal that night, maybe you have some dessert, and you can't watch that one thing you had thought you'd watch. That's what they've got over you. But imagine then you get a letter from the IRS and it says, Final Notice. you'd be much more likely to act and promptly, wouldn't you? Why? Because the authority of the government is much greater than that of your cable company. The authority of Jesus, the heir of all things, the creator of the universe, speaking the gospel to us, is greater, more profound, more to be listened to than even the Old Testament as important and as reliable as it was. So, so far, the author has not yet told us what the gospel is. He's told us parts, yes. But he's actually not proclaimed, just the gospel. You you see important components, but not the gospel. There's no repent and believe. There's none of this in here yet in all of the first chapter. But before he even gets there, because he will... Before he even gets there, he begins with the nature and authority of the one through whom the gospel comes. So let me ask ask it in a question. Why should a person listen to gospel proclamation? If you were to share the gospel with someone, or if you were to feel compelled during a during lunch break at work to just, wherever you work, go ahead and step outside, stand on the, on the corner there whether you see people or not and just start preaching the gospel. If you, if you felt compelled to do that and started doing that, why should anyone listen? Because that gospel is from Jesus. The author of life. The creator of all things. The heir of all things the one who is highest and most supreme and all authority. That's why. The origin of Christianity is not found in a man like Buddha or Muhammad or Joseph Smith. The origin of Christianity is in Christ. This gospel that we believe is proclaimed by Jesus. He gave it to us. So the immediate purpose of these verses is to show that Jesus is greater than the angels. And that's being laid out for us for the following purpose that the message he brought is even greater than the one they, the angels, brought. Now I said earlier, and I'll say it again, I think that in the rest of chapter one that the author provides four points that established the supremacy of Jesus over the angels. And I, you might see a fifth in there. You, you might kind of squish the categories together and see three. I, I think there are four. And today we're just going to cover the first two. They start here in verse five. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? or again I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son Here the author cites two Old Testament verses uh, Psalm 27 is the first one and 2 Samuel 7:14 is the second one And the point that he's making here is very clear he says for which for to which of the angels did God ever say this In other words he's drawing on Old Testament scriptures and saying listen what is being said in these scriptures is not true of angels, but it is true of Jesus. See that point? The point he makes, Jesus is called a son in a way that the angels are not called son. Psalm 2-7, that first one there, it's cited two more times in the New Testament. Once again in Hebrews 5 and also in Acts 13. And each point, it's, specifically applied to Jesus. Psalm 2-7 is a coronation psalm. That is, it's the kind of thing that he proclaimed over a king at the point in which he receives his kingship. And it's immediately in Psalm 2 at that time is applied most specifically to King David. 2 Samuel 7, 14, that second quotation there, that's actually a reference to Solomon. It's in the covenant given to David, God telling David about a promise he's making to David's son, Solomon. But both of those passages talk about the king of the Jews in such a way that they are clearly never fulfilled in either David, Solomon, or for that matter, any other, other, other kings of the divided kingdoms, Judah and Israel, this is why that by Jesus' day, the Jewish people considered this psalm, Psalm 2, to be pointing to a future Messiah. It was no longer thought, this, is, this must just be David, it's, this is a promise for a future Messiah. They thought of this as a messianic passage, as our author makes clear, is the case. He attributes it not to a future coming Messiah that we should continue to have hope for someday, but to Jesus. Did you know that in the Old Testament, though, the angels are oftentimes referred to as sons of God? Some of you might know this. You might see this term, sons of God, sons of God. It's usually in your Bibles right now, it's a little s, sons of God, like that. But God never says of an angel, you are my son. And clearly, the author of Hebrews, knowing the Old Testament texts, seeing these ones, knowledge of those, can still divide between a general sons of God, and that is celestial beings, it sometimes says, those who are higher in hierarchy than humankind, but are still creatures beneath creator, it's angels, are sometimes referred to as sons of God. And yet none of them is it said, you are my son, today I have begotten you. The word begotten just means become a father, fathered you. Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. No angel is singled out with that kind of son-father relationship language. The author knows this and he lays this out before his audience. In Psalm 2-7, it says, today I have begotten you. Why does it say that, do you think? Today I have, you are my son, today I have begotten you. There's been lots of conversation about that word. So quick point, just because there's so many errors that can be had from here, just a quick point to hopefully protect you from going off the cliff. Put guardrails in place here that we see in this text. Some people think that this means there was a point in history today. Whatever day that's talking about, there's a point at which Jesus becomes a son. But yesterday... He was not the Son. And therefore, maybe tomorrow he might not be the Son. People have thought this. There must have been a time, a point, maybe even in human history, in which Jesus became Son. But Hebrews thirteen eight later will tell us Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. You remember Hebrews 1 2? I've I've already read it for you twice today. I'll read it a third time. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Let me see that Jesus was the son through whom the father created the world. The son created the world. John 3.16 is a verse that might come to mind for some of you. If you think of begotten and son, did that come to mind? That came to my mind this week as I was preparing for this. John 3.16, for God so loved the world, put it up, for God so loved the world, he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Quick help for you. Some of you might have in mind the King James version of this. That's why I originally learned this verse back in Iwana when I was a little kid. We have the King James Version. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. You know, that, that terminology is used in the King James Version. The word begotten that's used in the King James is probably not the most helpful word. It's not even the same Greek word that's used, rendered begotten in Hebrews 1.5. It's a different word entirely. In fact, that word means to become a father, to father. That's what the begotten means in Hebrews one five. In John three sixteen, it's actually the word there that's rendered begotten. in King James is actually unique. For God so loved the world that He gave His unique Son. So that's why it's rendered in our modern version as only Son. It actually gets to the point of what's being said there. It's not begotten as fathered Son. It's only Son. That's the point. He's uniquely He's uniquely the Son of God in a way that no one else in all of creation ever has been or ever will be. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. This might help us to see he didn't give the second member of the Trinity that would then become the son. He gave his son. It was his son who entered into this world. Galatians 4, 4-6 through says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. So his son came forth who was then subsequently born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so we might receive adoptions as sons. So who was sent? Who was sent to be born? The Son. The eternal Son of God was sent to be born on earth, to be born of woman, as it says. But even a stronger case can be made for Jesus' eternal, eternal sonship that he was always been the son and he will always be the son in relationship to the father because look at the words in galatians 4 4 through 6 god sent forth his son born of woman jesus didn't become the son in his sending just like in verse 6 and because you are sons adopted sons like we are adopted sons of god god has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying abba father so I don't want to lose you on the pieces of this, but I want you to try to put this together carefully. If someone were to say Jesus was not, was not always the Son, he became the Son. The Bible testifies that Jesus always was the Son in relationship with the Father. Pre-existing our universe. Perfect relationship with the Father. And with the Spirit. Spirit. The Trinity had perfect relationship and it was a loving, not a, not a one, two, three, but a father, son, spirit in eternity past. And just like the spirit did not become the spirit by his sending, being sent, the son did not become the son by his being sent. The son was sent just like the spirit was sent. Jesus was no more made the Son than the Spirit was made the Spirit at their sending. Jesus entered into this world at a point in time. You want to know, why is today, why is that word there? What does that mean? Today I have begotten you. Today I have begotten you. Why would there be a timely point to be made there? I think that the reason it's there is to remind us that there is Jesus, timeless God, enters into time. He came in at a point in time in the Incarnation. He lived in points in time. He got baptized at a point in time. He died at a point in time. He resurrected at a point in time. This actually happened. We have dates for these things. It actually took place in our world at a geographical point at a chronological time. Since the earliest days of the Christian church, believers have been competing against wrong views of Jesus. And this is one of them that has been laid out since very early in church history. One of our very earliest creeds is the Nicene Creed. And by creed, that just means believers were saying there's lots of errors people might think about Jesus. Let, let's come up with clarity in language to kind of grab what the Bible says, bring it together and say it in a concise way so we know what we're talking about. We can, we can, we can come together on a statement of belief so we can get what that means. This is what the Nicene Creed says, written in 325 AD, regarding Jesus. Here's one part of this. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made of one being with the Father. The timeless one entered into time. He has eternally been the son, and he will forever be the son. The relationship that is shared between the first and second members of the Trinity is that of a perfect father and a perfect son. And the points of these verses being drawn upon and utilized here right now by this author is, as he states, to make the case that no angel ever experienced that kind of relationship with the Father. But he goes on. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. So I said before, I think that there are four points being made here by the author, drawn from the Old Testament scriptures, that prove the supremacy of Jesus over the angels. The first one, Jesus is called a the son. They're not called a son. The second one, angels worship Jesus, not the other way around. That means that if you and I were just to, were, were, were to peek in through heaven's gate and, and look at the throne room, just to get a, just to get a glimpse there, what do we see? You know, the apostle John, in his revelation, wrote what he saw. When he did peer into heaven, you know what he saw the angels doing? Worshiping Jesus. That's what they were doing. In fact, continually, day and night, forever and ever, they lift up praises to Jesus. That's what they do. He is not praising them. They are praising him. He is receiving worship from the angels. So the second point the author makes is that Jesus receives worship From the angels rather than giving worship to the angels. And he uses this interesting term, firstborn. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. What do we make of this term, firstborn? It's unfortunate that in some of these most beautiful, amazing, flourish heavy, almost poetic claims about Christ in the New Testament. So many people have tried to find error and build things about Jesus that are exactly the opposite of the intent of the author. Some have seen this term firstborn and clung to it as proof that the Bible teaches that Jesus is created. It means there was a point he wasn't born, so he did not exist, and then he got born, and now he exists. He exists. He came into existence at birth in a way that you and I came into existence at birth. And some might just kind of put it together into uh, conception, birth, just kind of push that all together. But the point being that he didn't exist and now he does exist. He's a creature just like us. And people say, firstborn, aha, right there. That's proof that he's creature like us. Jehovah's Witness neighbors say this about Jesus. He's created angels. Various forms of the way they might talk about it, but he's an angel. He's ultimately creaturely. Than creator. But the term firstborn, New Testament, and even more so Old Testament can be used to refer to a title having nothing to do with birth at all. In fact, what was significant about the firstborn? You remember what was significant about firstborn? The firstborn would receive the primary inheritance. That's, that's, that's kind of the point being drawn on. And what have we already heard about Jesus is that he is the heir of God, the heir of all things. He's inherited a name that's greater than the name of the angels. That's the whole point of this author, is to say, don't think Jesus is an angel. He's better. He's greater. He's more supreme. He's not created. Genesis 43. Let me show you there's two places in the Old Testament where firstborn is used of a person in the Old Testament, not meaning birth order, having actually nothing to do with birth at all. The first will be Joseph in the Old Testament. One of the 12 sons of Jacob, sons of Israel, his name will be changed to Israel, it says this is about Joseph after his brothers come down to Egypt and find him in power and prestige, and they're having a meal with him. Look what they said. And they sat before him, they, his brothers, sat before him, before him, Joseph, the firstborn according to his birthright and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in amazement. The firstborn. Born according to his birthright and the youngest according to his youth. Look what it says in Psalm eighty-nine, twenty-seven about David. And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. David was not the firstborn. He had multiple brothers older than him. He either had seven brothers or six brothers before him. One of them might have passed away. It's hard to count them. But he either had six or seven brothers ahead of him. And it said of him that he will be made the firstborn. Again, this is probably to be used as a messianic psalm pointing toward Jesus who will be called the firstborn. Israel is called the firstborn of God in Exodus chapter 4. Ephraim is called the firstborn in Jeremiah 31, 9. Jesus is called the firstborn of the dead in Revelation 1, 5. He's not the first person to ever die. Firstborn is a title of preeminence. It's saying something about him. That he is the primary, ultimate, one, true, final heir of God. And any inheritance you and I may have, we only have in Christ, the true heir of God. He was brought into the world. When he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, "Let all God's angels worship him." What, is, what does that mean into the world? Commentators are divided on this one. It's hard to tell. I don't know is the simple answer I would give you. When is this time he's talking about? And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world. He's talking about a past event, Jesus' incarnation, like or when Jesus, uh, Christmas, I'll say, when, when he's literally born into the world. Um, could he be talking about it as baptism? Some have seen it as that. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus, uh, the father says of the son there. Is it of his resurrection that he's brought back to life by the Father? Is that that where we see that? Maybe it's, is it the ascension? Or some have even said that perhaps this is his second coming? He's gonna bring the firstborn back into the world? Lots of questions. People don't know exactly which point in time we're to see this when he brings the firstborn into the world. And you know what? I think that's totally okay. Do you know why? Because at every one of those events, it's suitable for angels to worship him. The angels did worship him on Christmas. The angels do proclaim his name forever and ever. They worship him at his resurrection and his ascension. They worship him. We have accounts as he returns back to earth, they are in worship of their creator, Jesus. So you may speculate and wonder when precisely that particular point in time is, but all of them that we can imagine he is deserving of worship. And guess what? The angels are never deserving of worship. Jesus will receive his worship. Philippians 2, 8 through 11 says this. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is Jesus humbled himself, becoming able to die, and even in such a humiliating way as on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the. Earth. Heaven, angels, on earth, you and me and all the kings and great people that have ever lived and ever will, under the earth, even demons, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We're actually going to come back to that verse, those, those several verses in a few weeks no help us as we get into Hebrews 2. Jesus will get his worship. Isn't there something burden lifting about this? I feel that way. Doesn't this, doesn't this make worship easier? To me it does. Have you ever had a socially awkward friend invited you to a party or a gathering and maybe you've been busy maybe not have even been able to go but you knew that man if I don't go I don't know who else will. And because you genuinely love the person, you want them to know that love because you want to be there. If you're not there, maybe maybe there'll be a lot less joy to go around. It's not true of Jesus. You and I don't have to worry about that with our Lord. He will get his worship. God, in his infinite wisdom, determined that it was critical, not only for us to see that Jesus is amazing, but also to be specifically assured that he's greater than the angels. I want to propose to you a thought for a moment if you've not thought this before. Have you ever looked at passages like this that are trying to prove something that you didn't think you had a problem with? In other words, I'd like to hope that you already have this straight. I'd like to hope that every believer hearing this it's like, well, of course, I've always known Jesus is greater than the angels. Never never doubted that. Ever since I've been a believer, that's not a problem. No worries. That one's pretty locked in. I'm good. But passages like this serve us to make certain we get these important things right. God wanted this here in our scriptures, that we would read through, study through, that every believer who would ever go through Hebrews 1 from now until Jesus, or from Jesus' coming, first coming, till his second coming, would be warned to acknowledge Jesus greater than angels. You know, I've known believers in my life, Christians in my life, who I do think have an unhealthy fixation on angels. There are people who claim the name of Christ in this world today, who pray to angels. There are Christians, I think, that when they're having a hard day or they have a good day, they. They attribute much of that to whether the angels helped them or didn't. They're believers who fixate their mind on not things that they see right here, but on things of the angelic and demonic realm and are very prone to do that. Maybe you are prone to do that or maybe you have met people who are like that. we get more than angels. Don't celebrate that angels are serving you. Celebrate that Jesus is Lord over your life. I know that there may be non-believers here today or because we put these on our uh, podcast and put these on radio, as many of you know, it's possible that someone will hear this and be driving in their car on the way home from work. And because ours... Our time slots, 5.15, they may be coming home later than they would typically come home. and I don't know who will ever hear this. But if there's any non-believers who might ever hear this, those who don't know what they believe or think about Jesus, whether you're here or not, you need to know how much you need Jesus. Do you know what the greatest commandment is? Jesus said this. Do you know what the greatest commandment is? To love the Lord your God with all of your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength. If you were to ask a person, what do you think is the worst sin a person could commit? What I have most typically heard from people is hurting another person, killing another person. And the innocence of that person might make your transgression against them worse. So that if it's a kid, an innocent kid, hurting a kid is the worst thing because they're the most innocent. It's not the greatest sin. The greatest sin is not giving the love, adoration, worship, and glory to Jesus that he is worth. And because you have not done this, because you have not worshipped Jesus with all of the love that you have, you are under God's greatest judgment, but he has provided a way for you to be at peace with him now and eternally. The very same son that you and I in our lives have refused to worship came to this earth to love you, to live a perfect life to die at the hands of sinful people just like us. And in proclaiming and demonstrating that love for us, we can now be saved from hell, the ultimate price for our sins by believing in Jesus. These passages are here for a reason for us to not just think well of Jesus, not just think he's better than me or he's, he's better than uh, maybe some of the other spiritual leaders that I've had in my life. Maybe, maybe he's even like supernatural level. But to see that he is the greatest, the creator of angels, one who is worshiped eternally by the angels, one who has a name inherited that is greater than those of all of the celestial beings, and he is worthy of our worship. Let's pray. Father, this morning, my... Hope is that as believers, we would be encouraged to take our mind off of earthly things and instead look to heavenly things where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. That as every time we hear this passage, every time we hear even some of the other familiar passages, perhaps in the Bible, rather than just saying, got it, I got it, check, check in the mind, good, we're good. I've heard that before. I've read that passage before. But instead, it would be like a cumulative building on top of, of our understanding of who Jesus is that would lead to greater love and greater worship. That would make the things of this world seem small and insignificant. That would would help us to behold the throne of God. Lord, this is going to be a problem that we'll face every single day for the rest of our lives as long as we're here. That we're going to look to earthly things and not to Jesus. And so we thank you for these passages that hammer over and over and over again the supremacy of our Lord. Let us never think that we've learned this enough. We've heard this enough. We know this enough. We've got it down. Check in the box. Let us revisit time and time again and again your word that teaches the supremacy of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, until we see him face to face. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.